We're going to learn through the Hamedrash Vahamasa and Parshas Vayera. There's two pieces of Drush and one piece on Halacha. So the first piece of Drush begins with the story in the Haftorah of Elisha Hanavi and the miracle that he does that there's a ton of oil for a poor woman. So the Navi says, the Isha Achas Tsaka El Elisha. One of the wives of the Nevi'im cried out to Elisha. She says that she's a widow and her husband was a righteous man, and now she owes money, and the creditors are coming to take her two children as slaves. So Elisha says, Ma Eselach, what can I do to help you? Hagidi Tell me what you have in the house. And she says, I don't have anything except one little jar of oil. So he says, Go borrow vessels from your neighbors, Kalim Rekim Altam Iti. Go borrow as many empty vessels as you can and then bring them into your house and close the doors and pour oil on all the vessels. So she goes and she does this and suddenly she has endless oil and she has enough to sell it and to support her and her children and pay off the creditors. So Rabbi Chesko Lipschitz asks a few questions. First of all, why did Elisha require her to go borrow vessels? Why didn't he just do a miracle to make the little vessel that she had get larger and be able to hold much more oil. The same way he was already doing a miracle that there was going to be endless oil, why didn't he just create a much larger vessel from the small vessel that she had? So what was the point of borrowing vessels? Also, he says, why was it important for her to do this without anyone seeing? Alicia tells her that she has to close the door so nobody sees the miracle. Isn't it better for the miracle to be publicized. Now, the Medrash Tanhuma comments on this story that the second miracle, which was that she was able to support her and her sons, was a bigger miracle than the first miracle. So we have to understand what does that mean? Next, there's another question. Why did Elisha tell her to take the oil and sell it and then pay the creditors with money? The halacha is that if someone owes someone money, they're allowed to pay with shavek even with objects like oil or animals or whatever they have. They don't have to sell the object and get money and then pay the creditor with money. They can pay them even with an object. So why did this widow have to sell the oil and pay back with money? Why couldn't she just pay back straight with the oil? And there's another question on this story which seems against the halacha because according to halacha, one does not have to sell themselves into slavery in order to repay a debt. So why did this widow say that the creditors were going to take her two sons as slaves, which seems to go against the halacha? So there are two aspects of this story which seem to contradict halacha. So the Amedrash Vamasa explains, based on what he said in his previous drasha, that the point of the Jews being the chosen people is not to lord over other people, it's not to be better than other people and to benefit from them, but it's a mission to spread the message of Hashem. So it's really a kind concept of service. So this is a very difficult task. And of course, for the tzaddikim, they're willing to take this burden. But what about everybody else? So he says that this is the point that this story is coming to address. And he begins with the following point. There is a debate in the Gemara in Brachos, Chavtesamad Beis, someone who's in a dangerous place. So they can't daven the Shemona Esrei. So they daven a short prayer. What is that short prayer? So Rabbi Yoshua says it's Shema Shavas Amcha B'nai Yisrael. Hear the prayers, the Shava 
of your people, the Jewish people, and answer their prayers quickly. And Rabbi Eliezer has a slightly different version, hear the cries of your people, the Jewish people, and fulfill their needs quickly. So what is the debate between Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer? They seem to be saying the same thing, except they change one word. Rabbi Yoshua calls it Shavas Amcha, the prayers, and Rabbi Eliezer calls it Tsaakas Amcha, the cries. So what's the difference between a Shava versus a Tsaaka? So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains a very beautiful idea. He says that Tsaaka implies a complaint. Someone is saying, I don't deserve this situation. It does not mean that they're actually crying out that their voice is loud. Their voice might be soft, but they're saying, I do not deserve this situation that I'm in. And even though an earthly judge might get annoyed by that sort of argument, but Hashem is always willing to listen to a Tsaaka. So the use of Tsaaka very often implies that someone is saying this difficulty is not something that I deserve. As opposed to Shava, where the person is making themselves louder, so to speak, meaning they're saying, I know I do deserve this difficulty. I did do something wrong, but I can't handle it. So they're accepting the situation, but they're saying to Hashem, I cannot live with this situation. It's too difficult for me. I need you to help me out of this situation, even though I am deserving of it. So based on that, says the Hamedrash Vamasa very brilliantly, that's the debate between Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer. Because there is another debate in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Sadi Zayin. Rabbi Eliezer says that the Jews are only going to be redeemed if they do teshuva, but if they're sinning, they will not be redeemed. And Rabbi Yoshua disagrees. He says that either way, even if they don't repent, the Jews are going to be saved. So according to Rabbi Eliezer, one can only be saved if they merit it. So that's why it has to be a tsa'aka. That's why his language of the prayer is shmat sa'akas amcha, listen to the tsa'aka, meaning the Jews are saying we don't deserve this anymore because now we've repented. As opposed to Rabbi Yoshua, who says that the Jews could be redeemed even if they're undeserving. So he calls it a shava because they're saying, even though we do deserve the suffering, even though we have not repented, but we're not able to handle it. So please save us. So now he says a second introduction before he comes to explain the story. There is a comment in the Medrash, Tzadikim Shemam Kodem Lahem, that when there's a Tzadik introduced in Tanakh, first it says the shame, and then it says the person's name. So for example, Ushimo Boaz, and his name was Boaz. Ushimo Eov, and his name was Eov. As opposed to Rishaim, where the name is before the word shame. So Naval Shemo, Naval was his name. So that's a way to identify which characters are righteous and which characters are wicked. So Rabbi Cheskel Lipschitz wants to understand who cares whether it says the word shame before or after their name. What difference does it make? So he explains that a person has responsibility to two different types of groups. One is to themselves and their immediate family. And the second is to society at large. 
Now, the first responsibility to take care of themselves and their families is not unique to human beings. Every animal, every living being takes care of themselves and their families. So that doesn't indicate anything special about people. But the responsibility for society at large, for other people who are not immediate relatives, who are not immediate family, that is something which is special to a human being, which we don't find in the rest of the natural world amongst animals and other living things. So the name of a person symbolizes what sort of life they're living, what their essence is. So that's why when it comes to tzaddikim, the word name comes before their actual name to tell us that what symbolizes them is that they take care of others. It's not all about themselves and their own ego, but they're concerned with the good of others, as opposed to the wicked, where their proper name comes before the word shame to show us that their whole essence is just about themselves. The only thing they care about, like an animal, is taking care of themselves, not other people. So now, given these introductions, he comes back to the story of Elisha and the widow. The Medrash says that the husband of this widow, the man who had passed away, was Ovadia, who was the person who hid the Nevi'im when Achav and Izevel were trying to kill them. So Ovadia was someone who prioritized taking care of other people over taking care of himself and his immediate family. And Chazal say that in the merit that he gave those prophets that he was hiding oil, that's why his wife later merited to have this miracle with the oil. So it says that Medrash Masa, let's think about this story ourselves. Ovadia is a servant of Ahav and he decides to risk his own life and his family's life and to risk everything and to take care of and protect the Nevi'im that Izevel is trying to kill. So because he so selflessly took care of all these other prophets and saved their lives, that's why he was unable to provide for his wife and his sons. And when he died, they had nothing. It was all a result of the fact that Ovadia had totally prioritized taking care and protecting these prophets over his own self and his own immediate family. So this was a totally unfair situation that now his widow has to carry the burden of his debts, which he amassed by taking care of these other people. And she and her children are going to be the ones to have to carry the burden of these debts. And in fact, the Torah says in general that any widow and orphan, it's prohibited to oppress them because if someone oppresses them, v'haya im Yitzhak Eli Vishamati. If they cry out to Hashem, then there will be a punishment for the person who oppressed them. So there's the word sa'aka again. If the widow and the orphan are mistreated, so that's unfair. And if they cry out and complain about that, so then Hashem is going to act. So this is true of any widow and orphan. Certainly the widow of such a righteous man like Ovadia, who should not have been in this situation at all. So that's what the Navi says, the Isha Achas Tsa'aka El Elisha. A widow cried out to Elisha. It was a complaint. It was a tsa'aka. She was saying, this is not fair, this situation that me and my children are in. And then she continues, avdecha ishi. 
your servant, my husband. So now she's stressing that first he was a servant of Elisha, meaning first he prioritized taking care of the other prophets. So his priority was acting as Avdecha, and only second was he my husband. He put my and our children's needs second to protecting the prophets from Izebel. Then she continues, Mace, he already passed away. So once he passed away, the creditors should not even be collecting from him. If he had an estate, maybe, but they have no rights to collect from his wife and children once he passed away and had no property. And then her final argument is that he wants to take my children as slaves to pay the debt. And that, again, goes totally against halacha. So what this creditor is doing is both unethical because there's no reason that she and her children should suffer for her husband's good deed. And it also goes against the halacha because the creditor has no right to be taking the children as collateral for the debt. According to Chazal, the creditor in this case was actually Achav's son, Yehoram. He was the one that Ovadia had borrowed from in order to take care of the Nevi'im. So this is the widow's very powerful complaint to Elisha that this whole situation is totally unfair and it's cruel to her and her children and he needs to act because the creditor is acting totally immorally. But it's not only against the creditor that she's upset. She's upset at the entire nation, the whole community that's not stepping up to take care of her because they all owe it to Ovadia to help her out of this situation because of the good deed that he did. So Elisha's answer to her is that in terms of the creditor himself, so there's nothing to be surprised about because there's all sorts of cruel creditors throughout the ages, all sorts of people who lend money and then force the people to pay back even though they're unable to and they do all sorts of dishonest or unethical things in order to get their money back. So there's nothing to be surprised about in terms of this creditor. But in terms of the rest of the community, so says Elisha, first of all, they didn't know exactly what your husband was doing. They did not know the extent of how much money and how much oil and food he was providing to the Nevi'im. So you can't blame them for not helping you when they're just not aware of what your husband did. But then Elisha continues and he says something interesting. If you think that these are bad people because they're not helping you out now. So he points out that what would have happened if her husband had died and there was plenty of oil and bread in the house and she and her children had plenty to eat. So now the people would have said, well, we know that Ovadia was collecting tzedakah funds in order to support the Nevi'im. And now we see that the same food he was giving to the Nevi'im, there's plenty of it in his own house. So it must be that he siphoned some of the tzedakah funds. He kept some of the material for his own family. So now they would come to suspect him of having committed fraud with the tzedakah operation that he was running. So in fact, on some level, says Elisha, according to the widow who thinks that the people are bad people, it's better that she has nothing in her house because now at least they won't suspect her of fraud. But now, in order to resolve the whole point, and Elisha's goal is to show the widow that the Jews are not bad people. The creditor might be a bad person, but the rest of the community are actually good people. And the way he intends to do this is to show her that they're not going to suspect her of fraud. 
So that's why he goes about doing this very strange miracle. Because what he does is almost perfectly calibrated to make the people suspect Ovadia of fraud. First of all, he says that he's going to get her oil. So that was one of the materials that Ovadia was collecting for the other Nevi'im. So of course now people are going to suspect her of fraud because she has extra oil in her house. Second, he tells her to go borrow vessels from the neighbors. So again, this would increase the rumors because since the neighbors are giving her vessels, they're all going to realize that she's doing something that has to do with oil. So it would have been much better for her if she didn't have to borrow the vessels. There would have been a miracle that she just had a huge vessel in her house. But borrowing the vessels is going to get the whole neighborhood talking about why does Ovadia widow need vessels. Then the third problem is that the actual miracle of the oil happens in private. So if everybody saw the miraculous oil growing, then they would know that this was a miracle of Hashem through the Navi. But since it was done in private with the door closed, so this was another reason why people would suspect Ovadia of committing fraud and keeping some of the oil for himself. And then finally, the kicker of the whole thing is Alicia tells her to go sell the oil. So she can't even pay back the creditor in private with the oil. He forces her to go publicly and sell the oil. So now everybody sees the widow of Ovadia publicly in the marketplace selling oil that they have no idea where it came from. So this was the perfect storm to create all sorts of rumors in town that Ovadia must have kept some of the tzedakah oil for his own family. And Alicia sets up this perfect situation where there should be a lot of suspicion of fraud that Ovadia did not handle the tzedakah money properly. And yet Alicia concludes, You and your sons are going to live off the remainder of the money from the oil, meaning you're going to continue to live in this town and you're going to have a nice life and no one is going to suspect you of financial fraud. So this was the proof for the widow that the people in town were not bad people. She had claimed against the community that they were mistreating her and that they were not taking care of a widow. And this was a very serious claim that Hashem would have punished the locals if it was true. So Alicia went to all this effort in order to prove that it's not true, that the townspeople were actually good people and they were not going to be suspicious of her and Ovadia, even though suddenly out of nowhere, she was borrowing vessels and selling oil, which is exactly what Ovadia had been dealing with in his tzedakah operation. So this is a very beautiful, another important drusha with beautiful moral ideas and some insights into human nature. And he ends by saying that imagine in our generation, if there was someone that dealt with tzedakah and then suddenly people saw that they had all sorts of extra money in their life, there would be immediate rumors of fraud and all sorts of suspicion. So he says that's exactly what the Medrash means, that the second miracle, meaning the fact that the widow and her children could continue to live in town was an even greater miracle than the first miracle of the oil. The fact that the people in Alicia's times were not suspicious was an even bigger miracle than when the oil itself started to miraculously 
miraculously grow. So that's his reading of this whole story. I don't think he would say that no one should have oversight over tzedakah funds. There are people on the board. There are people who should be watching what's going on. And those people should make sure to be on top of it. But other people are sometimes too quick to jump to allegations of fraud when there is a board. There are people that have oversight over what's going on. And his critique is that sometimes people are too quick to judge and to think badly of someone dealing with tzedakah. So that's the first drasha. The second drasha has to do with the story in the Parsha when Avimelech takes Sarah and Hashem comes to him and says he better return her. So the Amedrash Ramasa points out that this same story happened earlier with Paro, but there's a few key differences between the story with Avimelech and the story with Paro. First of all, the Torah says, Vayishlach Avimelech Vayikach es Sarah. It just says that Avimelech took Sarah. It doesn't tell us a whole background story the way it did with Paro, that the people in Egypt saw Sarah and they told Paro about her. It doesn't give us this whole background story. It just introduces the story very quickly. Then Hashem comes to Avimelech and he says, you're going to die because you took Sarah. So again, this is different because in the story with Paro, it says that he got sick. It does not say that he was going to die. So Avimelech calls Avraham and he gives him a whole speech. What did we do to you? What did we sin against you? He tries to defend himself and his people and to blame Avraham for what happened. So he basically gives a whole defense, which is again different from Paro. Paro does not give a whole speech. He just says, Mazos Asisali. What did you do to me? He doesn't try to defend himself or his people, really. And then Paro just returns Sarah. That's the end of it. He doesn't have a whole conversation, whereas Avimelech waits for Avram's response, and Avram tells him, Rak in I saw that there was no fear of God in this place. So again, the word rock is extra. Why is Avraham saying that? So Damedrash Ramasa wants to explain what's going on in this story. So he begins with a comment of the Gemara, which says that one of the problems in Sodom is that the whole court system was totally corrupted. And this is one of the seven mitzvahs of non-Jews, the Noahide laws, that there has to be a system of courts. Now, there is a debate between the Ramah and the Marshal whether the courts of a non-Jewish country have to enforce the rules of the Torah or they can make up whatever their own rules are, like they could have English common law, but it has to be a moral system. So the Hamedrish Vahamasa agrees with that view because he says, according to him, the whole purpose of the Noahide laws is to keep society moral. So it doesn't have to be exactly the rules of the Torah. It could even be new original rules of that society so long as they keep people moral and they protect society. So that means that there's a lot of responsibility for the society itself because they're making up their own rules. So there's two ways that a society could become corrupted. Either it could be that they have proper rules on the books, but people don't follow them. So there's widespread violation of the laws. The laws inherently are good, but people are not listening to it, and the court system is not enforcing it. That's one way a society could become corrupt. And the second is that the laws they create themselves might be immoral. Like let's say Nazi Germany had laws which people followed, but the laws themselves were immoral. So the problem there was that people were following the laws of the country. 
So he says that in Sodom, they had both of these problems. First of all, the actual laws of the country were immoral because we know the way they treated guests was totally immoral. If someone was tall, they would cut off their feet to fit on the bed. And if they were short, then they would pull them. Or the Torah tells the story of how they surrounded the house of Lot when he was taking care of guests. So there were actual laws on the books about not taking care of strangers and guests. So there were actually immoral laws on the books of Sodom like Nazi Germany. But in addition to that, people also didn't follow the spirit of whatever good laws they had. So the Gemara tells that people would come and they would each take one small object, they would steal it, so no one person could be blamed because they had each taken a little bit. But at the end of the day, they had stolen everything that the person had. Now in Halacha, there is also a minimum amount that someone has to steal before the courts will get involved. But Rabbi Cheskel Lipschitz points out that there is a difference because in Halacha, if someone is holding the object that they stole, even if it's very small, then the courts will get involved. So the courts will do things in order to protect the victim of theft, even if each person only took a little bit. As opposed to Sodom, where not only were the laws corrupt, but the judges and the courts were also corrupt. So they wouldn't do anything to stop people from violating the rules they had, which were good rules. So Sodom was a total breakdown of a society in both ways that the courts and the laws can be corrupted. Now, the same distinction also exists for kings. So sometimes a king will act above the law, meaning there is a moral law, but the king will just choose to ignore it. And other societies built in to the laws is that the king can do whatever he wants. Included in the law is that the king is above the law. So that was the difference between Paro and Avimelech. In Paro's case, the king of Egypt was considered above the law. He did not have to follow the rules. As opposed to Avimelech, who did have rules, he just chose to ignore them. So this explains the difference between the two stories. When Avram and Sarah come to Mitzrayim, so the officers see this beautiful woman and they tell Paro about her. So it's all done very publicly. Paro is not trying to hide what he's doing because he is not obligated to follow the laws. He can do whatever he wants. So that's why Paro doesn't get into a whole argument with Avraham trying to defend the laws in Egypt because he knows that there's nothing to defend. Paro is allowed under the law to do whatever he wants. So the only thing Paro says to Avraham is Mazosasisa Li. Why didn't you tell me that this is your wife? The implication is that Paro is saying, I would have chosen to allow you to keep your wife even though I'm not legally required to follow the laws, I could do whatever I want, but I would have chosen out of the goodness of my heart to allow you to keep your wife. So that's the only thing Paro can think to say to Avraham because he knows that under the law, he was allowed to do whatever he wants. But obviously this is not such a serious argument because once the king can do whatever he wants, so what are the chances that he's gonna choose to do good by Avraham and Sarah? So that's why 
Paro doesn't even wait for Avraham's response. He just returns Sarah right away because he doesn't even want to get into this conversation because he doesn't really have a good defense for what he did and for the way that his country works. It's a totally immoral system where the king is above the law. So he cuts the whole conversation very short. As opposed to Avimelech, who lived in a more civilized place where there were rules that governed the king. He was not above the law. Technically, he should have followed the rules. But there was no fear of God. This was not a righteous place. So, of course, the king skirted the rules. And when he chose not to follow them, then he could get away with it because it was corrupt on that level that they would not stand up to the king. So that's why in this story, it says, Vayishlach melech gerar vayikach, that the king of Gerar, Avimelech, takes Sarah, but quietly, privately. This is not done publicly like in Mitzrayim because the people of Gerar technically would have said that the king is not allowed to do this. So this is why Abimelech gets into a whole argument with Avraham because he says, you're the one that caused the problems and you brought this situation to our country because you said that this is your sister. Had you told me that this was your wife, then under the law, I would not have taken her. Meaning Abimelech is proud of the fact that he lives in a more civilized city where they enforce the laws and the king is also bound by the laws. So that's why he keeps involved the city that he lives in, he says, Mazos Asisa Lanu. What did you do to us in the plural? Because he's not just talking about himself, like Paro. Paro only talked about Mazos Asisa Li. What did you do to me? Because Paro was above the law. So Avram should have had a private conversation with Paro. But Avimelech is bound by the law. So that's why he includes the whole community, Mazos Asisa Lanu, you violated our norms by not telling us that this was your wife and you said instead that it's your sister. And again, Avimelech includes the whole country, you brought this on me and my kingdom. So again, Avimelech is trying to stress that this is a kingdom where they follow the rules, including the king. So now he's waiting for a response from Avraham because he's proud of the kind of country that they've built and he wants to know why did Avraham come in and not follow the norms. So Avraham answers him, there's no fear of God in this place. So this is a very brilliant answer of Avraham. He's not just saying that because there's no fear of God, so they don't follow the rules. According to the Amedrish Vamasa, he's saying something even sharper. He's saying that if there would be no rules on the books. So let's say the laws of the country would be that you're allowed to steal. So then someone holding something valuable doesn't have to fear for their life because anyone who steals it from them doesn't care to leave them alive. Because what does it matter if they're alive and they know who the thief is? They still can't do anything because if they go to court, they're going to get laughed out of there. But if you have a law on the books that you're not allowed to steal, then the thief has to kill the person that they stole from because otherwise they'll go to court and get it back. So that's Avraham's point. He says, if Gerar is like Mitzrayim, where the king can just take any woman that he wants and violate any rules, so then there's no reason for you to kill me because you could just take my wife and that's the end of it. But since you officially have rules on the books that you're not allowed to take my wife, but there's no fear of God, so you're going to look to break the rules and the only way to do that is to kill me. So that's why Avraham
Chacham says, I was worried about my life, even though I know that officially you're not allowed to take my wife, but I was worried that you would kill me and that's why I had to lie. So this is a very brilliant answer of Avraham and it also explains why the punishment for Avimelech would be death as opposed to Paro who only got sick because Avimelech knew that he was violating the law. He knew that he should not have done this so the punishment was more severe as opposed to the Egyptians who were less moral so Paro didn't exactly even know that what he was doing was wrong so his punishment was less severe. So this is another very nice drusha explaining the difference in the psukim between the story with Paro and the story with Avimelech and it has this nice twist that sometimes if there are laws on the books but there's no fear of God it's even more dangerous than if there's no laws because people are trying to get around the laws and the only way to do so is to commit even more violence. So that's the drushas. Now, the halachic section also focuses on the difference between Paro and Avimelech. The Medrash points out that when Avraham comes to Avimelech, he's the one that says that Sarah is his sister and not his wife. Against Sarah's will. As opposed to in the case of Paro, where Avraham gets Sarah to say it. So the question is, why is there a difference? Why does Sarah say it with Paro and Avraham says it for her with Avimelech? Second, there's another difference. The Torah says that Hashem told Avimelech, return Sarah to Avraham because he's a Navi. So what does that mean? So the Medrash says that Avimelech asked Hashem, how is Avraham going to know that I didn't touch Sarah? So Hashem said he's a Navi. So again, the question is, why was Avimelech concerned with this and not Paro? Why didn't Paro ask, how is Avraham going to know that I didn't touch her? So Damedrish Ramasa asks a different question. What was Avimelech's concern that Avraham needs to know that he didn't touch Sarah? Because according to the Halacha, even if he had been intimate with Sarah, she still would be permitted to Avraham. You could say that this is just a moral issue. Avimelech wants Avraham to know that he didn't touch her, but that Medrash Ramasa is assuming that there's a more halachic problem, that he's concerned that Avraham is going to be prohibited to her. But the halacha is that in a case of rape, of coerced relations, the wife is still permitted to her husband unless he's a Kohen. So anyways, Sarah would have been permitted to Avraham. Says the Medrash Ramasa, in this case, it would not actually be considered coerced because she participated in the ruse. So let's say she told Paro that she's Avraham's sister, even though she was doing so to protect Avraham, but that's already not coerced. She's making a decision. And if Paro had had relations with her, then she would have been prohibited to Avraham. So that was the concern. Avimelech wanted Avraham to know that there was no relations. Now the Hamedrash Ramasa has a whole long tangent that I'm going to skip. But now he comes to the question of why in fact was Sarah allowed to lie to Paro and tell him that she was not a married woman when she was and that could potentially lead to a violation of adultery. So the answer is that it was Pikuach Nefesh. She was trying to save the life of Avraham so that's why she lied. So Pikuach Nefesh means that one is allowed to violate the 
rules of the Torah to save their life, but not only the person themselves who's in danger. Even other people are allowed to violate the rules of the Torah to save someone else's life who's in danger. And that's what Sarah did. Her life was not in danger, but she lied and potentially committed adultery in order to save Avraham's life. The issue, though, is this is derived from the Pasuk of V'chai Bahem, that we violate the rules of the Torah to save a life. But when it comes to non-Jews, that Pasuk, according to Tosvos, does not apply. So there is a logical point that a non-Jew could violate the rules if they're being forced to, to save their life. But how do we know that a non-Jew is allowed to violate the rules to save someone else's life? And this is before the giving of the Torah. So how did Sarah know that she was allowed to violate a mitzvah in order to save someone else's life? So he gives a very clever answer to this question. He quotes that Tosvos has a question on the story of Esther. There was a problem because when Esther went to Achashverosh, she was a married woman. So that was technically adultery. And she was going to be prohibited to Mordechai. So Tosvos asks, why didn't Mordechai just divorce her before she went to Achashverosh? So at that point, she would be single and it would not be adultery. Says Tosvos, he couldn't divorce her because he needed witnesses and that would publicize the get and he was worried that the government would hear about it. But that only answers the story of Esther. Why didn't Avraham divorce Sarah instead of going through this whole situation and having Sarah say that she's his sister? Why not just divorce her? And Tosos's answer that a get would require witnesses and it would get publicized to the government doesn't apply here because the Rambam writes that before the giving of the Torah for non-Jews, a divorce does not require a get. Once they separate, so that's the end of the marriage, that's the equivalent of a divorce. So Avraham would not have needed to give her a get. All they needed to do was separate and that would have ended the marriage and there would no longer have been a problem of adultery. And he says that in fact, in the Sefer HaKsav Kabbalah, that's how he interprets this story, that when Sarah said that she's his sister and not his wife, that was an actual divorce. They were no longer married at that point. So that's a very interesting interpretation. Now, says the Hamedrash Vahamasa based on this, so now either way, this makes sense of the story. If Avraham and Sarah had the status of Jews, so he was not able to divorce her, and that's why she had to lie and say that she's his sister in order to save his life, because Jews are allowed to violate the mitzvahs to save someone else's life. And if they had the status of non-Jews, so then she would not have been allowed to lie to save Avraham's life. But then by saying that she's his sister, they're no longer married. So again, there's no problem. So either way, whether they had the status of Jews or not, they resolved the situation. But that all applied in the story of Paro, because that was before Avraham had the bris milah. So potentially he was not a Jew at that point. But after that, he had the bris milah. So now he definitely had the status of a Jew. And the same is true in the parallel story with Yitzchak and Grar. He was a Jew. So that's why in both of those stories, Sarah and Rivka, were not able to lie on behalf of their husbands because they didn't have the leniency of the Chai Bahem at that point. So they were not allowed to lie on behalf of their husbands and saying that they're no longer married to their husbands was not enough to create a divorce. 
So that's why in those two later stories, Avraham and Yitzchak themselves had to say that this is my sister because the wives were unable to do so. So that's the shift from the story of Paro and Avraham to the later two stories.